dreaded two words that if you've ever taken a class, you didn't like these two words. If you can imagine <coughs> getting behind the wheel for the first time with a learner's permit. For me, it scared my mom half to death. On the back roads of Pennsylvania, no cars coming, and I was scared to death. But the point of learning to drive is so that you get in a car with a, an instructor and be able to navigate your car successfully. Back then it was parallel parking too. I've heard that they're really lightening up on the parallel parking, so I'm gonna talk to Massachusetts and New Hampshire and tell them to add that back in <laughs> to the uh, final exam. But whenever you take your final exam for driving, you have in New Hampshire, you have to have 40 hours. I don't know exactly how many hours you have to have maybe months of driving with someone who's had their license that should know how to drive. And you have to have hours and hours of training before you take the driving test. If you have a, an instructor who gives you a syllabus and says, okay, here are your assignments for the semester. And at, you'll see at the end of, the, uh, of, end of it is a final exam. And he tells you from day one, Okay, if you study hard for the tests and the quizzes, the projects, you will be ready for the final exam. You know what doesn't happen? The final exam isn't the second day of class. The, the professor says, okay, tomorrow is your final exam. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> we haven't had all this teaching. No, everybody knows that the final exam comes finally. You may have other tests before, but the final exam and some final exams, the hardest ones I found were cumulative which means everything that you've studied in that class could be on the final exam. Well, Paul is going to use the word examine yourselves, and this is the final chapter. You'll see probably a title in your Bible that says final warnings. And so this isn't the final exam for the Corinthians. We know that final exam day is waiting for us to the judgment seat of Christ when all of the, um, our works are passed through God's perfect fire from, um, is it 1 Corinthians 3 that Paul writes about that? So what we'll see today is uh, how God is going to encourage the Corinthians through Paul, what we can learn about our responsibilities. So if you are a teacher and you want to prepare students for a final, it's your responsibility to tell them how to study, what to study, how long to study, and say you're not going to just uh, easily get this final exam as difficult. You're going to have to spend hours and hours studying, and you're going to want to study this chart and this and this and this. And there, you know, and uh, you're a good teacher is going to prepare their students for the hardest of final exams. It's it's scary. Final exams are scary enough without even knowing any idea what's on them. But the teachers that I had in school uh, that I appreciated um, were ones that went through all of the course material and said, okay, this is what you need to know. This is what I'm going to ask. And you're going to have so much time to take the test. You're going to have so many of these type of questions and prepared you well for, for that. So Paul's going to give some final instructions here. Uh, some Bibles say warnings. I would say instructions, encouragements, and then you have final greetings. 
And so what we're going to look at are some responsibility uh, for the Corinthians to their spiritual leaders and then understand their role and their leader's role in verses 5 to 10 and then God's unity uh, in the end of how um, God helps us to prepare for these final exams. So first, uh, first four verses. This is the third time. We're in uh, 2 Corinthians 13. This is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now he gives a couple warnings here. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Okay, so we'll stop there and... Christ wants us to be prepared, and this whole book, 2 Corinthians, is about ministry. And if we are prepared for ministry, and as we minister well, when we stand before God in judgment, uh, we can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, God is not a mean teacher that says, okay, you're on your own for your final. I'm not going to tell you anything of what to expect when you stand before me. You're just going to have to wing it. <laughs> like, oh, no. Like, this is my whole life and my whole ministry. How do I know that I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, we have the New Testament. This isn't the only book in the New Testament. But we have here a lot of ministry uh, insight and a lot of defensive ministry and some final instructions here and encouragements on how to prepare uh, to minister well so that we can be prepared to stand before our God. Well, Paul says, I warned you, and I'm coming a third time, okay? This doesn't sound like, it sounds a little bit like, okay, don't make me come a third time, <laughs> like, but he wants to come a third time. The second time, we don't have much of that. It's, I think it's Acts 20, the beginning of Acts 20, only one verse in Acts talks about that second visit to Corinth. The first visit, he spent a year and a half. We have a lot of that, um, but after he goes a second time to Corinth, he writes at least 2 Corinthians then. And he says here, uh, as he said in chapter 12, I, I'm going to come a third time. And I'm going to evaluate uh, the warnings that I gave you the second time to see if you, I'm going to check with the two or three witnesses to see. And if you have a leader like Paul that, you're, that have, has led you to Christ or has helped you to grow in Christ's likeness, and he says, I'm coming a third time, and he gives you some warnings, you better listen up. Okay, a teacher that's preparing you for a final exam says, okay, this is not an easy test. The last class that took this, the highest grade was like a 70%. You're like, oh, oh man, this is really hard. Okay, so that would be a warning. Now, Paul says, I, I'm going to come a third time, and I warned those who sinned. So those who aren't faithful to the Lord, and, and we're, we have a list of sins and other uh, specific sins in 1 Corinthians, and we're not told here what those sins are. We had a list of sins at the end of chapter 12, and that's likely uh, still uh, in the context what uh, is in view here. But he says here, I warned those who had sinned before and all the others. So those others who didn't sin, who watched people sin in the Corinthian church, they should have uh, rebuked them, they should have gone through the church discipline process that they went through in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, I warn them now while absent. Okay, so I'm warning you from remote, remote warning, that as I did uh, when, I, 
when uh, present on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them. Uh, and probably likely church discipline here is if people are sinning and two or three evident witnesses are saying, yes, these people are continuing in sin. Why are they still in church? When Paul comes a third time, he's going to help them exercise church discipline. So the responsibility to godly leaders is uh, what we have seen in uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12 as Paul's defending his ministry. And uh, we looked last week at trusting godly leaders. Now, warnings from godly leaders. Verse 3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. There is so much in those two verses. I could spend the whole time just on those two verses. So I'll do my best to summarize these because we're going to try to get through all 14 verses in our text today. So what is he saying? You seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now, Paul has given evidence that Christ was using him in ministry for the last three chapters, 10, 11, and 12. So he's just going to summarize those, the defense of his ministry, that I am speaking in Christ. And he says, he, that's Christ, is not weak in dealing with you. Now, we have seen the power of Christ to, de to destroy strongholds. Other things back in chapter 10, verse 5. And now he says, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Christ's power is present among churches to help them follow the warnings of you can't sin and just think it's no big deal. You can't live, let, go back to verse uh, chapter 12, the last verse, where he says, last two verses, verses uh, 20 and 21. For I uh, fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Now, Corinth was known in its day like Las Vegas is known in our day, where it's known as Sin City. Corinth had that reputation. So a church that has been saved out of gross immorality is still going to struggle with people Newer believers and those who are wanting to come to Christ and those who want freedom from uh, immorality, they're going to have a lot of uh, this in their, in their congregation. And so Paul says, what you need is Christ. Christ is speaking uh, in me, and Christ is among you. He is powerful among you. Now, if you told someone in Corinth that someone who died on a cross was powerful among you, you'd say, hmm, Weak people are crucified. Criminals are crucified on a cross, not powerful people. Powerful people live in Rome, or they're governors, or they've got a lot of authority. Right, but we're not talking earthly authority here. So Paul says, he's going to explain the, the cross in verse 4, for he was crucified in weakness. Where most of the time that you, if you and I were there watching Jesus be crucified, 
he was weak, physically weak from the loss of blood. Blood was dripping off of his body from his, his brow where the crown of thorns were, from his back that was tear, torn to shreds, from the, obviously the nails uh, in his hands and his feet. He struggled to breathe as people do on a cross. And yet, that's not what made him weak as well was spiritually he was drinking the cup of the wrath of God. He was bearing the sins of the world. He was crushed by God. Isaiah 53 says, And while we look at the cross as a time when Christ was physically weak, he became spiritually weak, separated from his father by choice. And yet, that's not the end of the story. Because we have sung, and Brandon mentioned, the living hope, that Matthew records, when Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is torn. The rocks around Golgotha, Mount Calvary, were split, and their, their graves were open. And many saints who had passed away before, who were trusting in Jesus as their Messiah, many of them rose again. We don't even know how many. Many. They stayed in the tombs until Jesus rose again, and then they came out and showed themselves. And what would it be like if you were family, your family member was in the tomb, alive for three days, and came out and showed you, hey, Jesus is alive. That's why I'm here. Whoa! Okay, so it appeared on the day that Jesus died on the cross that Jesus was weak. But as we have history, we have the text of Scripture to look back at the cross, as the Corinthians have been explained and have been given the gospel and have been given in 1 Corinthians 15 the power of the resurrection, they have no excuse to say, uh, well, we thought Jesus was weak. Or we have a hard time witnessing or ministering because Jesus died on a cross. Oh, no. Christ is among you, and he is powerful. Verse 4 continues, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Christ is alive. The crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. Christ is alive, and the power that's displayed in Acts chapter 2, where Jesus is at God's right hand, and he's the one who sends the Spirit, and Peter preaches and tells us that exactly what has happened. All the power of Acts 2 is credited to Jesus, who is at God's right hand. He's living in power and great glory. And as the apostles get to share the gospel to those who crucified Jesus and tell them, you killed the author of life. You had better turn from your sin and trust the author of life, whom you crucified to be your Savior, or you're going to stand before him in judgment. And what does Revelation tell us about the power of Christ? He's coming in power and great glory. His eyes are glowing. He's got a sword that comes out of his mouth, and all the power of revelation is accredited to Jesus. The cross may appear to be a 
temporary weakness, physical weakness. But Christ, because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, he lives by the power of God. Four, verse uh, four continues, for we also are weak in him. Now, Paul has mentioned several times in his defense of 10, 11, 12, how he was physically weak. He was physically not a specimen to behold. He wasn't going to be in world's strongest man competition in his lifetime, not the way his body was built. He uh, verbally wasn't eloquent, so that he was just going to, just when he spoke in the marketplace, crowds are going to go, just to listen to this guy because he is such a great orator. That is not, that's not Paul. But he had knowledge of God. He had devotion, simple, genuine devotion to Christ that he wanted to pass on to the Corinthians and wanted them to carry that devotion to Christ on as he wasn't there and he wasn't going to be able to stay there and be their pastor. He was just going to help them and help them to minister effectively for Christ. So Christ lives by the power of God, and we also are weak in him, where we are positioned as believers in Christ. But in dealing with you, so here are the Corinthians who are in Christ, here is Paul who is in Christ, and Paul says now, but in dealing with you, we will live with him, relying on him by the power of God. If you were to ask Paul, why do you keep traveling on missionary journeys? He'd say, because God wants me to. It's God's plan. Paul, you are you're physically worn out. You have scars all over your body. It takes you longer to walk than the average person who hasn't been beaten all these times and stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and other things that we've seen in Corinth in uh, this this book a couple chapters previous and he says i understand the power of god and i want you to understand the power of christ it is powerful among you you don't realize it is the power of god the power of christ just among the corinthians in the first century or is it among his church today christ says i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it why? Because Christ is powerful among his church today. COVID can't destroy the church. Communism cannot destroy the church. Selfish, immoral believers, false teachers cannot destroy the church. It will continue until God takes us to heaven. Because we have the power of a crucified Savior among us, and he lives by the power of God. And even though we are weak physically, and this book has talked about weakness, our light momentary affliction, which is but for a moment, works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we have physical weakness and affliction and thorns in the flesh like we saw in Paul's, in Paul's life personally, but yet we have available to us the power of God in the person of our Savior. So you need to understand, if you're going to be ready for a final exam, 
Understand the warnings that godly leaders give. Also understand the power. Godly leaders are relying on God. The godly leader is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect leader. He is the example. If Christ came first as a conquering king and says, I want you to be like me, we'd say, uh, we can't conquer. We don't have the power that you have. Only the apostles had it a little bit. But if he came as a suffering servant and said, hey, suffer like me, be humble like me the first time, and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> everybody can do that. From the greatest to the weakest, from the smartest to those who aren't so smart, from those who are wealthy to the poorest person on the face of the planet can be humble. And we learn humility and relying on the power of our Savior as our bodies as our bodies are weak and we realize these bodies aren't sufficient for the work that God's given us to do, but God is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And we have to understand the power of Christ among us. And we rely on Christ. This is why we have prayer meeting. This is why we pray as God's people. Because we don't have the power. We are every week relying on the power of God together and asking God to change us to be more like our Savior. Continue, we're going to go quickly through 5 to 10. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this is about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, as you're studying for final exams, you can practice and you can quiz yourself. There's technology out there that you can make uh, sample tests for yourself. You can practice uh, by yourself in a parking lot when you're taking a, uh, preparing for a driver's test so you don't hit any cones and you um, learn how to operate your car uh, safely. So Paul says here, examine yourselves for what? To see if you are in the faith. If you are in Christ Jesus, or Christ Jesus here is in you. Everyone who claims to be a Christian is not. In fact, if 60 or 70 percent of the United States says that they're Christians, and look at what kind of laws we're passing, there is no way anywhere close to 60 or 70 percent of people in our country are Christians. I've lived in South Carolina, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, and 60 to 70 percent of my neighbors in any of those six states, five states, are believers. They're not born again. But false teaching is rampant. Pray this prayer, and you're in the family of God, false teachers say. What? Accept Jesus as your Savior. No, that's not how we get into God's family. We need to accept the gift of eternal life. Yes, but you better repent of your sin and rely completely on Jesus' death and resurrection, or you are not in the faith. You are Christ Jesus is not in you. So test yourselves. You could have been coming to this church for years and years and years and end up before 
Jesus at the end of your life and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? And you can list all the good things that you've done as a Christian. And if you're not in the faith, you're not trusting Christ alone. All I have is a warning. You better repent. You better trust him alone. There is, I'm not giving you a broader way. The broad way never leads to life. The broad way always leads to destruction. It's the narrow way that leads to life. Understand your roles. Your role and your leader's role. Verse 5, examine yourself to see if you are trusting Christ alone. I can't make anyone, I can't make my wife or kids, or I can't make anyone in my church trust Christ alone. This is something you have to examine to see if you are in the faith. It's not complicated, but you can't trust Jesus plus something else, plus your works. It is Jesus alone. That is the gospel. What Christ did on the cross and the empty tomb. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So they knew the gospel from the first letter. And Paul says, examine yourself. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Don't you realize this about yourselves, that, Christ, that Jesus Christ is in you? So if you are in the faith, that you're trusting Christ, you're not only in Christ secure, but Christ is in you by his spirit. Unless, he says at the end of verse 5, indeed you fail to meet the test, which has to mean you aren't in the faith, and Christ Jesus isn't in you, and you're a fake. You can fool the leadership of our church and get us to baptize you or welcome you into membership if you're not a believer. But you can't fool the one who knows all things. Test yourselves. Parents, help your children in your ministry, in your home. Understand your role, and you're the leader in your home to understand your kid's role is the first yours, and then your role as a leader if you're a teacher here, understand your students and you as a teacher, help them to know the gospel clearly. Encourage them constantly to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. See, if someone is sinning and is sinning and sinning and two or three witnesses are saying, you are sinning. This is gross immorality. What are you doing? You're living a sensual life. You're living like other people in Corinth, and we are the church of Jesus Christ, and Christ's power is among us and is here. Aren't you in Christ? Don't, aren't you in the faith? And someone proudly says, of course I am, or they can humbly say, I'm not so sure. I'm going to go home. I'm going to examine myself. If you will examine yourself to see if you are trusting Christ alone. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 5. Now verses 6 to 9, he says, and it's a little bit uh, tricky to understand the first read through, but he says, don't worry about your godly leaders. They pray for you to do what's right. So if you were ungodly, getting this letter from a godly leader like Paul You'd say, I don't even know if that guy's a Christian. I don't know if that guy's in the faith. And you may rightfully at times question the faith of 
ungodly leaders. You say, how does an ungodly leader stay in power in a church or in a, an institution? Um, well, they've got, they've fooled a lot of people. They're not going to fool God. But Paul is saying, now he's not in the ungodly leader category. But what do we do if we are um, concerned about whether our leaders are failing this test, if, if they're really in the faith? Paul says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear uh, to ha have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. So we may seem to you that we ha aren't in Christ, that we haven't met the test, and we're telling you to examine yourself, and you're saying, well, you should examine yourself first, <laughs> and we go back and forth. Paul says, no. Okay, I just want you guys to do what is right. Okay, you may seem, it may seem like this, that we have failed to meet the test, but I hope that you find out that we have not failed. Okay, I hope you find out that we are legitimate, godly leaders. But don't worry about us, because Paul's not worried about Paul, because he's secure in Christ. He's worried about these Corinthians who are justifying sin and living in sin and neglecting or being uh, un unaware of the power of Christ among them or even if they're in the faith. And so he says, I'm praying for you. He says this twice. In verse 7, he says, we pray to God that you may not do wrong. And then um, verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul's letters, his life, his preaching all backed up this in verse 8, so the, the Corinthians should not be worried about Paul, whether he's in the faith, because he's only doing what's according to the truth. Verse 9, he says, For we are glad when we are weak that you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Okay, so several times throughout the, these books, Paul says, You guys are really smart. You guys are kings. I wish you were kings. And there's another time where he says, uh, We were weak, and likely physically, and you're strong, so like you think that you're, you got it right, that you know that we are not in the faith. Paul's saying, no, we're only doing what's according to the truth. And he's saying, we're praying for you in verse 7, you, that you won't do wrong, and we're praying for you to be restored. Restored, I think, to each other and to the Lord, and we'll get that at the end of this uh, section here. Verse 10, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. Then when I come, I may not have to use severe, may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So the Lord gives Paul and other godly leaders authority. He gives parents authority in a home. He gives teachers authority in a classroom. He gives elders authority in a church. So verses 6 to 9, don't worry about your leaders. They are praying that you'll do right. Even if you think that I'm your enemy, okay, I will still, I have to remember what I have to do to my enemies, right? I have to love my enemies. I have to do good to those who do me wrong. That's okay. Um, there are times that your kids think that you're an enemy as a parent. You don't let me, wait a minute, I'm, I'm saving your life, <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay, I'm trying to do this for your good, okay? So, don't worry as much about your leaders to see if you just make sure that you're in the faith. Make sure that you got the power of Christ and that you're not uh, giving in to sin. And your leaders are praying that you'll do what's right. And then verse 10, 
Your leaders want to build you up. It is such a joy to have a church or a family where those that you're serving and you're ministering to are listening and they're obeying Christ. It's like, oh, this is so nice. It is so nice when we, we tell our children to do something and they do it. I'm like, oh, that's great. And you want to hug them all the time uh, and you want to build them up. I feel the same way uh, here at church when we lead as elders uh, and as leadership team and we want to want to build you up and we don't want to tear you down. But there are times as uh, Paul has and every uh, leader has an uh, opportunity to help uh, tear someone down who is too proud or um, not understanding their role. Okay, now verses 11 to 14 and we're done. The final of the final exam. What is Paul after? What is God after for us? If you remember all of the division, selfishness, fighting, quarreling, justifying a guy who was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmom, all that was going on in 1 Corinthians. And Paul had to write that letter plus a severe letter, and now he's writing 2 Corinthians, and he, we, this doesn't come as a surprise. What Paul is saying here in the final four verses matches what he has said in all of the two to three letters that he has written. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And see, it's possible to live with people that have, are very different than you in a church setting, come from very different backgrounds than you, and you can live in peace and unity. It's happening. All around the globe, it's happening. It's happening in Drake at, at 517 Methuen Street. Right now, it's happening. Why? Because Christ is powerful among us. Christ gets the glory for the unity that we enjoy here. And if at times there's some disunity and some disagreement, some quarreling, then we say, okay, so what do we do? We've got to go and see if we're in, a, in the faith. Yes, we are in the faith. Okay, we've got godly leaders that are going to help us. They're going to try to build us up. If there's sin in our lives, we've got to deal with that sin and selfishness and pride. And then we aim for restoration. We look to minister to others like this, comforting and agreeing and living in peace. See, when I come and comfort you, I'm not concerned with what you think of me. I'm concerned about your need. And when you go to comfort someone else, you're like, there's someone who's struggling. I got to go help them. This is how ministry works. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 said. We grieve with those who grieve and we rejoice with those who rejoice we are a body of christ and we enjoy the unity of the body of christ so what do we have to understand to be prepared for this type of ministry we have to understand that god is with us okay i left off the last phrase we didn't read it yet and the god of love and peace will be with you I think it's an idea of he will be with you in approving of what you're doing, in rejoicing and 
rest restoring and comforting and agreeing and living in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. He will be agreeing with you. This matches what Paul says. When I come and I find you do what's right, I'm going to build you up. I'm going to be rejoicing with you. If I come and I find you sinning, I'm going to have to tear you down. I don't want to have to come and tear you down. I'm going to have to mourn before God for you. I, I want to come and rejoice at how God is using you in ministry. God is with us. We have no excuse for disunity in our church because of Christ's power, because we're all in the faith and Christ Jesus is in us. And we're not worried about other people. We're worried about ourselves. And we're praying for those. And we are working to rejoice and restore and comfort and agree and live in peace, knowing that God, the God of love and peace, will be with us. The next verse, I hope, is cultural because I don't like to practice this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I really, I, I really think this is just cultural. Um, all joking aside, but there are some cultures that this is appropriate. Okay, so if you are in a culture where kissing each other every time is appropriate and you aren't getting along, that's the last thing you want to do is go up and kiss someone on the cheek or other cultures on the lips, all right? <laughs> okay. But if you're not getting along, you do not want to see that person. There is no comfort. There is no agreement. There's no peace. There's fighting. You need to be restored, and you don't want to. So Paul says, okay, you get right with God. You get right with other people. God is with you, and now you can greet one another as a brother, I'm fine with uh, a, a brotherly hug or handshake uh, for most of us. That's, that'll do. All right, so greet one another with a holy handshake or a holy hug. Uh, and for some of you, if you want to kiss, that's up to you. But uh, anyway, moving on. Verse 13. Practical personal unity is possible. All the saints greet you. There are some... Uh, f false religions that think you don't achieve sainthood till after you die and someone prays prayers in your name. But the Bible calls Christians that are alive on earth saints. So the moment you and I turn from our sin and trust Christ alone, God calls us saints. It's not, oh, he's such a saint. Nope. It's not like I'm good. It's like I'm right with God. I'm a holy one because I'm in God's family. So all the saints greet you. So greet one another in your church, and then you enjoy the greeting from outside the church of all the other saints as Paul's traveling around and telling uh, churches that God's doing some good things at Corinth. I'm writing them a letter, uh, and uh, the, the saints uh, greet them at other from other churches to the Corinthian church as well. And then finally, verse 14, another verse that could have its own message. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Likely this is um, the Lord Jesus Christ who's giving us grace, God who is giving us love, and the Holy Spirit who is giving us fellowship. Fellowship with whom? It's, it's left not clearly defined. You have something in common. You have a unity here, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit here helps us to 
be with God, right, and understand Christ's power and all the rest that the Holy Spirit does for us in the New Testament and seals us and guarantees us and empowers us and convicts us and prays for us. All this that the Holy Spirit does for us helps us to have fellowship with God, but I think the Holy Spirit also helps us. He helps us to have fellowship with one another. So if you say, I I can't get along with that person, it's because you're not walking in the Spirit. Because when you are walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, oh yeah, we, we can display the fruit of the Spirit. So understanding that the whole Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Christ's grace is sufficient when we have the thorn in the flesh. God's love clearly defined in 1 Corinthians 13, and now the Holy Spirit helps to put all of this together and helps us to live in unity with God and with his church. We really don't have any excuses to live in disunity. The Trinity gives us what we need for God-pleasing unity. So applying this to our lives. When we pass the final exam, if Paul the Apostle came to grace in 2023, would he build up or rebuke us? If you had an interview with Paul at lunch today, and he started asking you questions that he had encouraged the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians about, to see if you're in the faith, to see if you're uh, justifying sin, to see if you're selfish or quarreling or anything else that we see in, in these books, would he have to rebuke you? Or would he say, all right, good job, keep it up. But we don't have this as an option, right? Just a hypothetical. Instead, are we as individual Christians, when you go home to yourself, you have to examine yourself personally. Are you personally reflecting God's love, grace, peace, and fellowship? 1 Corinthians 13, love. The grace that we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, sufficient for even thorns in the flesh. Peace that looks like these, <laughs> these believers have very little in common and they're getting along and part, as part of the body of 1 Corinthians 12. And then fellowship. Are you reflecting individually? See, because... If enough of us aren't, this church isn't going to reflect God's love, grace, peace, and fellowship. But if enough of us are, then we can help you. If you're struggling with number two, ask someone that you respect and say, I appreciate your love and God's grace and your peace and your fellowship. Can you help me? We'd love to. We'd love to spend time with you. It's not quick. It's a relationship over time. And if you're not in the faith, you ought to be scared to death because you're going to stand before God and he's going to condemn you to hell. So realize this, that this is your job to test yourself. And if you are seven years old and older, that's you. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And then uh, ask yourself to um, evaluate yourself according to 2 Corinthians uh, 13. We all, want to, we all want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You want to be in heaven when your kids get to hear that from God. Don't you? When your grandkids get to hear that from God. And then those that you 
ministered to and you discipled and you walked with and they aren't your relatives but you spent a lot of time with them on earth and they stand before God and they hear that too and it's not because we're good or we're great or we got it down it's because we just know God's word we're just trying to obey it and we know God let's pray our father thank you for your truth from second Corinthians I pray you give us the grace and the love and the peace and the fellowship. Give us the humility that we need to examine ourselves. Help us to realize that we have the power of Christ among us. And that Christ is in us. And that the Trinity is for us. And I pray that we would not grieve you, our Father, our Savior, who we just remembered in the Lord's table, Help us not to grieve the spirit who lives inside of us and seals us for the day of redemption. Help us instead to submit to Father, Son, and Spirit. Change us by your spirit with your word. Help us to look more like our servant, Savior, Jesus. Humble us and keep us humble. Keep us usable and help us to minister until you take us home, in Jesus' name.